All right, good morning. My name is Josh. I get the privilege and opportunity to serve as the college pastor here at Alliance and um, excited about being with you this morning and opening uh, God's word together as we continue in this Proverbs series. So if you will, uh, open to the Proverbs and we're going to see who took uh, sword drills in just a minute. We're going to be all over the place. If you remember sword drills, you hold your Bible out, somebody calls out something. Uh, the lucky part is we're going to be in Proverbs the entire time. So you just got to find the chapter. So if you can count, you're okay. If we move too quickly, just jot down chapter and verse and you can go back and look these up later. Uh, these will be behind me on the screen as we go along. So we're going to continue this morning uh, in Proverbs talking about words. You will see that the title of the message is Words Part 1, which hopefully logically you figured out there will also be a Words Part 2. You guys are awake and you can count. This is good. Um, so I, I'm going to be I'm going to be working through uh, the the topic of, of words. I know that's an an, uh, an unenviable task on my part to be uh, to have the assignment to preach about how we use our speech. Think about that. I, I am using my speech to say what the Bible says about how we use our speech. Uh, the Lord has has certainly uh, been uh, bringing me to some points of contention in my life between how I live and the and the Scripture. And so hopefully the same will be true for you. Uh, this morning. One of the joys for me of parenthood, if I, if I haven't mentioned this to you yet, I have five kids. One of the joys for me of parenthood, uh, in my opinion, is reading good books to your kids. I love a good read aloud. Uh, we are working our way through the Chronicles of Narnia series right now. We finished five books. We have two left to go. Uh, and the boys decided they needed a little break from uh, that particular sort of the fantasy uh, fiction. So we're reading uh, a little bit of a historical book at this point. But one of the books we finished in the Chronicle of Narnia series is the fourth book called Prince Caspian. And if you want to read this book, I'm going to spoil the whole thing for you. So plug your ears. And then when I nod, you can unplug and we'll keep going. In, in the book, uh, young Caspian, he, he's, he's growing up under the rule of his uncle Miraz. And his uncle Miraz is a tyrannical king who, unbeknownst to Caspian, Miraz has killed his father and usurped. I know it's early, so uh, let me change. He's stolen the throne of uh, Caspian's father. And Miraz is keeping Caspian around for one reason and one reason only, because Miraz does not have an heir to his throne. And so when he dies, it's going to get handed over. And so he's keeping Caspian around until something comes along. Well, he discovers he's having a son, and immediately that night that the son is born, Caspian's life is in danger. And so a kindly tutor uh, of Caspian, Dr. Cornelius, comes along and he says, you must go with me at once. And he smuggles him away from the castle and takes him off uh, out, into the, out into the woods. And he tells Caspian the truth about his identity. And this is where the book sort of leaves the runway and really takes off. When he begins to tell him who he is, Caspian discovers the truth about who he is, his identity. He discovers what happened to his father, and he discovers that his destiny lay in reclaiming the throne that is rightfully his and his family's. And as he processes these things, something fascinating starts to happen inside of this young boy, I imagine in his early teens, uh, maybe 12, 13, 14, something begins to happen inside of Caspian. As he learns the truth about who he is, his identity, he becomes an entirely different person. You can see the change happen in him as he learns the truth about who he is. He begins to live differently. He begins to think differently. He begins to choose differently and he begins to even speak differently. You hear his speech go from being more like a little boy 
And he begins to have this confidence and this air and this authority of a king. And he begins to speak with a kingly tone and with kingly words because his discovery of his identity has fundamentally changed who he sees himself to be. And it leads him to live differently. I believe the scriptures teach this truth for us this morning. So I'm not going to staple the gospel on at the end of this message for you, this week or next week. What I want you to hear from the beginning is I want you to hear the gospel and how that shapes how we use our words. And so I would say this to you this morning. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know that Christ has saved you from your sin, that the Holy Spirit has indwelt you and you are walking with him, if you are in Christ, here's what I would say to you this morning. As a new creation, you have the power and the ability of Almighty God living in you to change. That's a good place to say amen. Because what I'm about to say on words this morning is going to be a heavy load to carry. It's going to be a burden that no one in this place can stand up under. And so if we don't have the hope and the forgiveness of the gospel to come along and lift us up where where the word sometimes will crush us down... It can feel rather damning. And so I believe that the spirit-empowered ability to change and live differently, listen to me, extends all the way out to that little three-by-five mucous membrane hiding behind your teeth. That thing. So as we face this difficult topic, I want to see conviction and hope co-mingle, really be best friends. And what I would encourage you this morning is this. If the Lord convicts you about your speech, don't run from that. Don't plug your ears to that, right? Don't turn your back on God as if he's convicting you of your speech. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit is wanting to do a work in you today. What an amazing thing that God would want to do a work in you, that he would want to do a work in me. So let's invite him to do that. As we read through the Proverbs, you find all kinds of topics addressed. And so when we preach these, we have to gather them. Like when you go through the grocery store, right? They tell you to start on the you know, outside and stay around the outside. I like the middle of the grocery store better. Um, But you go throughout the grocery store and you have a, a menu and you gather items and you put them in your basket and you bring them together and they come together to form one meal. This morning, I'm gonna do that and help us look at one meal, our topic of our words as we've gathered Uh, what the Proverbs say about our speech. The one constant throughout the book is this, the massive amount of attention that is given to our words. Someone said it's actually, the whole book could be argued that it's about words because it's words, instruction given to a son on how to live. It's words on words, right? By my rough count, a couple of weeks ago, over 180 out of the 600-ish Proverbs from chapters 10 to 31 deal with words. That's over 30%. Over a third, almost a third of the book deals with this one topic of words. Philip Brooks said this, listen to this quote. We know metals and coins by their tinkling and we know men by their talking. Jesus said it's by our words that we're condemned and by our words that we'll be justified. He says we'll give an account for every careless word we speak. Clearly, how you talk and how I talk matters. Do I have your attention yet? This is a heavy subject. So we're going to take two Sundays to see what the Proverbs say about the power of our words. We're simply breaking it down like this. This week, we're looking at words that hurt. 
Words that hurt. How words hurt. What kinds of words hurt. Words that hurt. Next week we'll look at words that help. Words that hurt. Words that help. So come back for the second part. So I've grouped them into six little subcategories. The first category is this. Words that hurt are slanderous words. Look at the Proverbs on the screen behind me. 11.13 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but whoever repeats a matter separates close friends. 18.8 says, tells us the words of a whisperer, listen to this, are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of our body. And 20.19 warns us, do not associate with a gossip, a gossip. The word gossip in the Hebrew carries the idea of a merchant, carries the idea of a merchant that goes around on the street. I I picture, you know, from maybe the middle ages, a man pushing his cart with his, you know, kind of tinkling, trinkling wares, uh, and he's selling off pots and pans and all these sorts of things, and he's pushing it through the street in order to make a profit. That's his personal motive, is he wants to gain something out of selling his goods, Well, think about that in terms of our motivation for slander and gossip. If the word gossip carries the idea of a merchant peddling his goods, when we go around slandering, we're going around peddling slanderous words all over town. What is our motivation? Think about it. When you tear somebody else down with your words, when you slander, when you gossip, what is your motivation? Generally speaking, it's because we want to be in the know, right? Right? We want to be the one in the room that knows what's going on. Hey, have you heard what people are saying? We want to have the upper hand because a lot of times it's a power play. I know something that you don't know. And so I'm going to pretend even if I don't know that I have this knowledge because now I'm in the position of authority. Sometimes we peddle slanderous words for a third reason. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's envy. We can't see someone else prosper without thinking I've got to pull them down to where I am. And so we sling mud on other people. Maybe somebody's applying for the job that you're applying for and you want to go around kind of just scattering little little morsels of gossip so that you get the job. But the scripture strongly warns us against, listen to this, allowing this kind of talk to have a place in our lives. Think about this. If somebody's going to come into your home and they walk through the mud to get to your home, what do you tell them to do every time? My mom's here. I know how she told me to do. Take your shoes off and leave them where? Outside. Don't track that mud in my house. But that's what we do when we go traipsing through the gossip and the slander and we come walking up into the house of somebody else's life. We track all over the place. The Bible says don't allow it into your home. Don't allow it into your heart. Leave it out on the porch. So in a simple manner of speaking, somebody comes to you and they want to gossip. Hey, leave that out on the porch. I don't have a place for that in here. Or maybe you're the one that's going and the Holy Spirit says, leave it out on the porch. There's no place for that in there. We've all seen the wreckage that's caused by slander and gossip. Ephesians 4 exhorts us strongly, listen to this, put off the old self, put on the new self that is created in righteousness and holiness. Paul says, let no corrupting talk, nothing that's going to decay you, destroy you or rust your soul let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but listen to this only what is good for building up fitting the occasion and giving grace to those who hear that word grace means a gift your words ought to give gifts 
not steal life. Gossip never gives grace. One of the Puritans said, this unguarded use of the tongue is the chariot in which the devil rides. So you have to ask yourself, do I want to escort the enemy to his next demolition project? That's what we're doing. Then we've got to give no foothold to the devil and we've got to run from gossip and run from slander like your hair is on fire. Number two. Second category of words that are hurtful are argumentative words. Argumentative words. Have you ever been around somebody who loves to argue? Don't elbow the person beside you. They might be elbowing you, right? Somebody who loves to argue. Every sentence begins with, well, I hear what you're saying, but that's not exactly correct. I catch myself doing that a lot, right? Or you find this person, if they're on social media on some platform, they engage in every heated debate and they've got something to say and they've just got to insert their two cents and everything. Argumentative people, the Bible says, love to stir up strife. They love to throw big rocks into the pond so it makes the water murky. They love to drive home their point until they win. I was talking with a couple recently. We were doing premarital counseling last weekend. And we were talking about this issue of, of speech with our spouse, resolving conflict, arguing, you know, disagreeing. And I told them this, when you are dead set on winning the argument, when that's your goal, then here's what you're dead set on. The inverse is true. You're dead set on making your spouse the loser. When you have to win, then in your mind, they have to lose. And I, told, I looked right at them, I said, nobody wants to be married to a loser. That's not why you picked them. We're one flesh, so when you make them the loser, who else are you making the loser? Yourself. Because when your marriage tanks, because you have to win every argument, then guess what happens? You lose. Proverbs 26, 21 says this. As charcoal is to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. 17, 14 says the beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. In other words, like stop taking out the rocks of the dam. It's going to run you over. We need to learn when to quit, when to stop putting more wood on the fire. You say, well, how do you do that? Galatians 5 tells us when we walk in the spirit, we will not gratify, satiate, please the desires of the flesh. And one of the fruit of the spirit is what? Self-control. Here's what this means. You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. Winston Churchill said, life is full of opportunities to keep your mouth shut. The book of James tells us that the wisdom from above, there's another kind from below, the wisdom from above is, listen to these adjectives, these descriptors, is first pure, peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. None of those descriptors are synonyms for argumentativeness. If you find yourself spewing argumentativeness out of your mouth, that's not God's wisdom. The third category is harsh or angry words. Proverbs 15.1 says a soft answer turns away wrath. Y'all remember the song? Hey, soft answer, hey, soft answer. I'm gonna solo for Hunter next week. No. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When I was a little boy at daycare, 
five, six, seven years old, I remember this. We had this one lady that worked at the daycare and she never took a day off. <laughs> she yelled all the time, all the time. One, two, three. Well, we learned if we just, we could wait for one and two, we just had to be there at three. <laughs> and the way she would holler, it made us angry all the time. Nobody liked her. Her grandson didn't like her. <laughs> But the director of the program, he later became a pastor. Joe Price is his name. He talked to us so differently. I loved Joe. He talked to us. His speech was so different. He spoke gently. He spoke calmly. He spoke warmly. And we'd come to Joe all in just all up in a fuss. Man, we're mad. We're fighting about something. We'd get in trouble. The other lady would yell at us. And his soft responses had a way of deflecting and diffusing our anger. She ignited us, we blew up, we were angry, but he had a way of like calming the situation with his words. Listen to me, just because the answer is soft does not mean it is weak. 25.15 says this, a soft tongue is powerful enough to break a bone. I broke this arm twice, this arm once, dislocated this pinky, tore both ACLs and fractured both ankles. I know a thing or two about ERs. And it says a soft tongue can break a bone. That's powerful language. Amy Carmichael, the missionary, when she was faced with tough situations and she needed the help of the Holy Spirit and she didn't know what to do, she would say this little four-word prayer. This is so good. This is easy to jot down if you're taking notes. Four words. Your gentleness, O Lord. Your wisdom, O Lord. Whatever the need of the moment was, Amy Carmichael would whisper this little prayer. Your patience, O Lord. How many combustible potential situations could we avoid if in the middle of the moment we would just say this little prayer? Your peace, O oh Lord. Notice one last thing about harsh words. Look at Proverbs 15.1. It doesn't say many harsh words stir up anger. What does it say? A harsh word. It's singular in the Hebrew text for a reason because the point is clear. One harsh word can ignite a firestorm of wrath and fury. One word. Your gentleness, O Lord. Number four. Fourth category is reckless or babbling words. This is when we talk too much. This is when we run our mouths and we don't know when to stop. Proverbs 10.8 says, a babbling fool will come to ruin 18.2 says a fool takes no pleasure in understanding. In other words, he don't want to listen, but only in expressing his opinion. 29.20 says, do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. When does your mouth not get you in trouble? When it's shut. That's why we don't get in a lot of trouble when we sleep, unless you talk in your sleep. When does your mouth get you in the most trouble? Most of the time, it's because we talk too much. We don't know when to stop talking. We've all heard the saying that God gave us two ears and one mouth so we would do twice as much listening as we do what? Talking. You say, oh, that's just simple anecdotes, is it? Maybe there's some wisdom in that for us. Some of our trouble comes because we don't know when to stop talking. Proverbs 18, 6 says a fool's lips, listen to this, walk into a fight. 
His lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. This is a little bit graphic, but listen, the Bible is pretty graphic. I literally saw this happen when I was in high school. There was this one guy, I won't mention his name, but he kept on picking on this other student. And the first guy that was bullying, the bully, he was real cool, he was real popular. Everybody back in the day used to wear these long chains down to here, you know. He had all kinds of chains to match this and he, 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 he was cool. And he was picking on this other student. And this other student's name was Robert. And Robert had a learning disability. He knew exactly what was going on, but in the classroom he struggled. He had a learning disability. He didn't often get picked on, but this one kid decided he was going to pick on him mercilessly, just, just terribly. And one day, Robert caught him outside when everybody else was in class. I happened to be out of class for some reason or other, and I was walking down the steps of my high school, and I came up and I looked. And Robert had this other guy by the back of his shirt. And he was, Robert was a, he was a man. That's what they called him. And he was dragging this other guy up the stairs and this other guy was bloodied. Whole face, all the way down onto his cool sweater and his chain. He was being drugged up the steps, nearly unconscious. What happened? His lips invited a beating. Proverbs 12, 18 says, our rash words are like sword thrusts. Nobody last night, if you have children or grandchildren in your home, nobody reached in the drawer and took out your sharpest knife you could find and handed it to your three-year-old son or grandson. That'd be crazy, right? Why? He waved that thing around all wild and everybody get wounded in the house and you come in with band-aids all over creation. That's what the word says. That's the picture. Reckless words wound everyone around you. They wound people. Have you been wounded by a reckless word from someone? Have you wounded someone with a reckless word? Proverbs 18, 13 says, if you give an answer before you hear, it's to your folly and shame. If you recklessly babble, if you don't listen, it shows you are a fool. A good rule of thumb here. This comes from Stephen Covey is this. This is awesome. Listen, seek first to understand, then to be understood. We, we get that backwards, don't we? We want everybody to know how we think and where we stand and what our opinion is. But sometimes we need to seek first to find out where they're coming from and how many conflicts could be avoided if we did that. Number five is deceitful words. 12.19 says, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. 14.25, a truthful witness saves lives, but one who breathes out lies is deceitful. It calls lying, and I'm gonna get to other actions of deceit in a moment, but it calls lying an abomination to God. You say, what does that mean? What is an abomination? An abomination is anything that God hates, it's something that is offensive to him. It's offensive to his character and to his glory. Lying is an abomination to God. In the New Testament, Satan is called the father of what? Lies. In Revelation 21, it specifically says, the portion of all liars will be the lake that burns with sulfur and fire. You say, why does God hate lying so bad? Here's why. Because God is a God of truth. His word is truth. He is a God of truth. He is a God of righteousness. And nothing else that you or I do causes us to more closely resemble his enemy, the devil, than when we lie and pervert the truth. If it is the truth 
that sets a man free from bondage to sin than it is lies and deceit that make him a slave. I also need to mention this. Deceitful speech is a lot more than just lying, isn't it? You ever embellish, just stretch it a little bit? Exaggerate things, maybe like spin it just a tad or shade it a certain way so that it looks a little bit better than it is. You tell half-truths or you leave out, you know, you omit certain details to slant things. Any kind of speech that covers, conceals, or redirects people away from truth. Covers, conceals, or redirects people away from truth. That is wrong speech that is an abomination to God. Think about Genesis 3. What did the serpent come to Eve in the garden and say? Did God really say? He's twisted. He's deceiving. And the last category is this. Not only do hurtful words hurt others, the Bible teaches us that hurtful words hurt us. They hurt us. Proverbs says they ensnare us. 12.13 says, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of whose lips? His lips. 18.7 says, a fool's mouth is whose ruin? His ruin. And his lips are a snare to his soul. 21.23 says this, whoever keeps his mouth and keeps his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. See, words have a boomerang effect sometimes, don't they? Words have a boomerang effect. What does that mean? When I just recklessly sling them out there, that boomerang goes back and what do I wind up having to do? Duck, because it comes back to knock me in the head. Words have a way of coming back on us. I grew up here in this little jingle, maybe because my parents are here this morning and I thought about uh, this as I was studying, but I always heard this, be careful of the words you say. Make them soft and sweet. For you never know from day to day which words you'll have to eat. Our words have a way of coming back on us, don't they? People remember things. We never know how it's gonna come back. The Bible says our lips are snares, listen to this, to your own soul. Not your body. The Hebrew is clear. That's a different word. It, you, your words are a snare to your nefesh. It's how I don't know what a nefesh is. It's your soul. Your words are a snare to your soul by how you talk. How is that possible? Jesus in Matthew 15, 18 says this. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. What comes out of here originated down here. We don't just talk aimlessly. Out of the overflow of the heart, Luke chapter six says. Out of the overflow of the heart, our mouth speaks. That water comes from underground. You turn on the spigot. That spigot didn't create the water, did it? It comes from somewhere else that you can't see. Warren Wiersbe said, the key issue in our speech is the condition of our heart. If there is war and strife and sin in our hearts, listen, your words will be destructive missiles instead of healing medicines. I'm gonna say that again. If there is war and strife and sin in your heart, your words will be destructive missiles instead of healing medicines. So when your tongue tells the story of what's going on in your heart, what does it say? Our tongues tell on us, don't they? We try to cover it. 
We try to conceal it. We try to shade it. We try to hide it. We try to put makeup on it, right? But when we are with people, Richard Foster says, when we are with people, what we are comes out. And most oftentimes, where does it come out? That little hole right there in the middle of your face. I heard about a lady who went to her pastor. She felt guilty about spreading this malicious rumor all over town. So she went to him for help and she asked him, what do I do? And he says, well, go get a big bag of chicken feathers and take them around town and place them on every doorstep in the community. Well, she looked at him kind of oddly and thought, okay, well, he's the pastor. Maybe he knows better than I do, so I'm going to do what he says. She goes and gets this big bag of chicken feathers and she begins walking around the community, placing them on every doorstep that she could find. And she goes back to the pastor, very proud of herself, and she says, I've done it, I've done it. I've, I've put out all the chicken feathers. And he says, good, very good. Now I want you to go right back down the exact same pathway you started and collect all the chicken feathers and put them back in the bag. She looked at him and said, I can't do that. That's, that's impossible. He said, why? She said, they're everywhere. I'll never get them back. And he looked at her and he said, you're exactly right. And so are your words. You can be forgiven, but you can never get them back. The thing about hurtful words is this. You can't get them back, can you? I was a comm major right here in Walker Hall, just down on River Street. One of the only things I remember from my degree is this. Communication is irreversible. Once it's out there, it's out there. Once it's been said, it's been said. It's got to be dealt with. We can't get those, we can't stuff those words back in our mouths. But here's the good news that the gospel holds out for us is that we can't get them back, but we can be forgiven and we can be cleansed. And here's what I want you to walk away with today. If you're under the weight of this ideal life that Proverbs sets out for us as a target to aim at, if you're like, I'm not hitting that target, I'm not over that bar, I'm not making that mark, here's what I wanna say to you today. You can put away your old patterns of speech and words. You can put those away by the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you if you're a Christian. You can change. You can. Not you by yourself, but the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, wants to, and is going to lead you closer to Christ's likeness until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1 says. He's not gonna abandon the work he's begun in you. And part of the work he's begun in you is reforming how we speak. First John 1 John 1.9 says this, if we, what? Confess. That means we have to use this thing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means this, if you will use your mouth to agree with God, about the sin you have done with your mouth, then he promises he will, he, he will cleanse you and he will forgive you. John 8, Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. That's a strong, clear call for her to leave her sinful ways behind. When we sin, listen, the Holy Spirit, when he forgives us, he hangs a no fishing sign over that fishing hole. You don't have to go back and keep fishing up the guilt of what you said. You may need to go make it right with somebody. You may need to use your words to build up and give grace to those who hear. But you don't have to live in the guilt of how you spoke this morning on the way to church. You don't have to wear around the guilt of what you said last week to your employer or to your spouse. You don't have to keep carrying in your pockets hidden and concealed, but it's weighing you down the way you talk to your children 
The Bible says you can confess these things, but listen, he's a God of grace and truth. And the grace part is he wants to forgive you, but the truth part is we have to walk away from some things he calls us to walk away. I think sometimes in our emphasis to uphold grace, we're afraid of imperatives, commands. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over and over and over and over, Jesus tells people what to do. I would be remiss if I preached a sermon on the use of words, but I failed you to, failed to call you to repent for your sin in this area. Same for me. Thomas Akempis said this, spit out the poison with all speed and hasten to take the remedy and thou shalt feel thyself better than if thou did long defer it. Say, what's all that mean? Spit out the poison, take the remedy. You will feel better for spitting it out instead of holding it in. Don't wait. I may be the only person here today that has the task of speaking on the subject of speech. You don't have to do that, right? Aren't you glad? I may be the only person here today with the task of speaking on the subject of speech, but I'm not the only person here today who struggles with sinful patterns of speech. I know that. If God is convicting you of how you speak, of how you use your tongue, of how you use your words, of what's going wrong in your heart so that destructive missiles just fly out of your mouth every time you open it, why don't you do something about it? The Bible invites you to do something about it. It doesn't leave you where you are. The gospel of grace comes down and doesn't fish you out. The gospel of grace grabs you out of where you are and lifts you out of that hole and empowers you to move away from that hole. And I'm calling you this morning to move away from sinful patterns of speech that are not glorifying to God. Will you? If you're a believer in Christ, the good news is this. All you have to do is confess it. That paternal forgiveness You've already got the judicial forgiveness. The judge has already said, you're not guilty. Jesus was guilty on your behalf. He took your punishment. He took the cuffs. He went to the prison of our shame and our guilt on the cross. He did all that for you. All you have to do is come and receive my paternal forgiveness. I'm a forgiving and loving father, he says. He waits with arms wide open for us to come running. And what does he do? He comes running to us, the parable tells us. Confess it and allow him to work his cleansing power in your life so that you speak with truth and love and kindness. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'll say this lovingly but kindly, right now you're on your own. And it's only going to get as good as you can force it to in your own power. And eventually, like a man riding an elephant, eventually, you lose the ability to control that elephant. It overpowers you, don't it? And your elephant runs wild and you have nothing you can do. If you're not a follower of Christ and God's convicting of your sin, all you have to do is come to the cross and ask for the forgiveness that he offers. He's paid the price, but listen, don't use your mouth to sin this time. Use your mouth to ask him to save you. Peter was sinking in the water and what did he say? Lord, save me. Nobody pulled out a tract and read 18 pages to him and said, repeat this prayer after me. He simply knew he was drowning. He said, Lord, save me. 
His heart knew that Jesus was the only thing that could rescue him from dying. 